have to say amen to this. How you guys like my haircut? I went old school. I hadn't, I hadn't had my haircut like this in a long time. It was funny. David Reed saw me yesterday and says, Oh my gosh, he looks like old Andrew. Because I wonder if people are going to think, You're old Andrew. I said, I am old Andrew. I haven't changed. I just have more babies now. If you have your Bible, turn it into Matthew 5. Verses 21 through 26. Hold your place there. When the first high definition televisions came out, I remember one of my friends got one. And I went to his house. They weren't flat screen yet. They were flat screen, but they weren't thin. So they still had the big back, but they were flat up front. And he wanted me to watch the NCAA tournament on his high definition television. It's uh, 32 inches or something like that. And I went over there and we, I looked at it and he said, take a look, here it is. Isn't it awesome? And I looked at it, and I'm impressed by this. And I looked at the television and the picture was actually blurrier and grainier than his old tube that he had. He said, isn't it awesome? So I told him no lie and I said, Oh, yes, yes. It's so much clearer than the old thing. I wanted to buy a new TV several years ago, about 10 years ago now. And I went out to Best Buy and I saw the high-definition TV. I had this bad experience with my friend and I saw it in, in real time what he expected it to look like. And it was spectacular. I mean, you could see the pores in the faces of the people on television. You can see every pimple, every mole, every blemish. It was glorious. You can also see more and more makeup, I thought. <laughs> and I remember I got the TV home, and I plugged it in, and it was the same blurry and grainy TV that my friend had. And I was, of course, disappointed because I had spent a few thousand dollars on this TV. That was back when the cost of that much. So I called up and I said, what's going on? I spent $2,000 on a TV and my old tube looks better than this new high definition TV. And the person asked me, what's your cable? Is your cable high definition ready? No, it's not. He said, well, you've got a high definition hardware, but you don't have high definition software. You've got all of this pretty stuff and all of the machinery to do it, you just don't have the software there. So it doesn't matter how good this TV is. And this TV was good when I bought it. It doesn't matter how good or how technological your TV is. If you don't have the software to go with the hardware, it's always going to be blurry. The Sermon on the Mount is the hardware or high-definition religion. It's got all the bells and whistles. If you want to see true holiness in action, you live according to the Sermon on the Mount. It is high-definition holiness. Many in the world love the Sermon on the Mount. Non-believers, Believers, 
people of other religions still admire the Sermon on the Mount because of the richness of its ethical and moral teachings. And Jesus is not just saying, come and follow a command and do a command a certain way. And he's saying, no, you've got to fix the inside. And so non-believers love this passage and love this section of scripture, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and all they're doing is admiring high-definition hardware. You see, you have to have a high-definition signal in order to take this sermon and make this sermon into high-definition holiness. If all we have in the next verses on anger and lust and on divorce, on retaliation, if all we have is a teaching of what not to do, all Jesus has done is taken Moses' law, which was impossible to keep in its literal and in its basic fashion, and made it harder and more impossible to keep. Because now he says, what really matters is what goes on in your heart. It doesn't matter, man, if you haven't committed adultery on your wife. Do you lust over women who are not your wife? And it doesn't matter, sister, if you haven't murdered your husband, you lust over other women. Do you hate him in your heart? Are you angry with your brother? And if all we have is high-definition hardware, and we don't have high-definition software, we're in trouble. Because what was hard is now, what was impossible, is now eternally and infinitely impossible. This week and in the weeks that follow, I want to talk about the high-definition life that God expects His people to live. This is not perfectionism. This is not legalism. But what Jesus teaches in the verses that follow is an expectation of righteousness that supersedes the holiness of every other religion. Namely, that true religion begins in the heart. And what is on the inside, as one country saying goes, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. Every religion in the world tries to fix externals. And Jesus said, it doesn't matter. They even try to legislate externals. The country we live in right now is trying to legislate morality. It's trying to force us to love people of another race by, by saying, if you say this word, it's considered hate speech, and there are repercussions in the court of law for it. Or if you say this against a particular sexuality, You'll lose a job for it, or, or you'll lose your, your career, or you'll be penalized for this. And while we might support and say it is not nice to use those words, it's not nice to be unkind, we understand that high-definition holiness comes only if we have God's Holy Spirit living within us. Caesar can put a law on every single word he wants to, but Jesus is concerned about changing your heart. Because ultimately, God is going to judge the thoughts and the intents of our heart. It doesn't matter what the news people say and don't say every night. 
when they don't share with you their real views, if in their heart they still hate people of other races, still hate people of other sexuality, still hate people of other religion, God will judge the heart. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, our world is trying to retain freedom without virtue. And it's impossible. Lord, so many of us are coming to the Sermon on the Mount to be more religious and to try and put into practice the rules and regulations and the moral and ethical teachings of you, Lord Jesus. And without the Holy Spirit, it is impossible. We're like a high-definition TV without a high-definition signal. We're blurry, confusing to the world. Lord, what we need is your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit. Jesus, you said, I am the vine. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Equip us with your Holy Spirit that we might live in high definition holiness. For all these Jesus, Amen. Look at our text this morning. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Jesus is beginning his first ethical teaching. We're coming off the heels of his last passage where in the last passage he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And now he's going to give examples of that. His first one is in You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You ever said you fool? So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What's Jesus talking about this morning? I want to look at four points in this passage this morning. I want to take those points, I want to explain those points, and I want to apply them for us. The first point I want to make this morning is that Jesus is the Lord of Scripture. Jesus is the Lord of Scripture. In the opening verse, Jesus says this, You have heard it was said to those of old, but I said When I got old enough to stay at home by myself, my parents would say to me, Don't open the door for anybody. I don't care if Jesus comes to the door and knocks. You don't let him in. 
you guys are laughing because you can believe my parents would say that. I don't care if Jesus comes to the door and knocks and says, let me in. You don't open the door. That's what my parents would say. So you can imagine being the mischievous loudmouth that I was. I said to my father, but dad, you told me to always obey Jesus. And he said to me, yes, son. But Jesus said, children, obey your parents, so don't open the door. Can you imagine my dad saying that? What was really going on was that dad was in fact teaching me that Jesus was the final authority in my life. That even when it seems like I'm disobeying Jesus, I'm really obeying Jesus by obeying my parents. In verses 22 through 23, Jesus juxtaposes his teachings not with Moses, but with the lax teachings of the Pharisees. Okay, Jesus is not contradicting the Pharisees or the, the Mosaic law. He is saying, You have heard it said by the Pharisees, essentially. They have taught you this about the Mosaic Law. They have taught, literally, don't murder. They have taught the letter of the law, but they have not taught the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law is not just don't murder, it's actually love your neighbor. We like to give ourselves a pass sometimes. We say to be like, well, I don't hate him. But forget that for a second. Do you love him? Love is an action. It manifests itself in actions, not in a feeling. It doesn't matter whether you feel a certain way about someone. In fact, Jesus is hoping that will change and expecting it to. In the light of the fact that all people have been created in His image, red and yellow, black and white, all created in the image of God. He hopes you understand that. He hopes you understand all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Red and yellow, black and white. He hopes you understand that much. So that your inside, your heart feeling, and your hatred for others is changed by understanding you're just one of the all. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you were shown forgiveness. And he expects you to share that same forgiveness. Jesus takes his teaching and puts it up against, in every one of these points that you'll see this week and in the weeks that follow, up against the lax teaching that all we have to do is follow the letter and we don't have to change our inside. But Jesus wants our inside to change. Many of us follow culture or the teaching of our parents or our sinful feelings. Or the teachings of our professors in college. Or the voices on social media. All of these voices that compete against Christ, we are following. When Jesus says, but I say, every other voice should shut up its mouth before the very word by whom and through whom everything that ever was, is, and ever will be was made. Jesus is the final authority of 
everything in life. He gets to come in and search your heart and say that bitterness and that hatred for your brother or for your neighbor is not okay. Replace that with love and the knowledge that I loved you. Think of the most unlovely of persons and know that God has shown His grace to even the most unlovely. Paul said, I am the worst of sinners. Yet Christ showed His love. Jesus is the Lord of Scripture. And for whatever Jesus teaches on anger this week, it could be on murder this week, and, and, and lust and adultery in the next, and on divorce, that's a big one. Who are we going to follow? Jesus or the other witnesses? The rubber hits the road here. As to whether or not we are Jesus' disciples, if you are Jesus' disciples, you follow what Jesus said and did. There is no other option. This is an important point. Because so many people are calling themselves Christians today and look nothing like Jesus. Do us a favor. Stop calling yourself a Christian if you're going to live a different way than the way Christ did. Jesus is the final Lord of Scripture. He is the final Lord. He interprets and teaches God's Word, and it is our responsibility to follow it. When Jesus says, I say, that's the end of it. But what does Jesus say in this one? Point two, Jesus says that our desires and our declarations and our deeds matter to God. And that they are all lumped into one. Jesus says, you shall not murder, but I say anyone who is angry, anyone who insults, or anyone who says you fool. Now, both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men, murder is a grave evil. That much is obvious. But there are no such laws, at least not in this country, where it's illegal to be angry with someone. There are, of course, laws against slander and libel. Which Jesus notes as manifestations of the heart when he says, if you say you fool. There are laws against that. But in the world, the courtroom has no way to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. But Jesus is speaking about two courtrooms. The courtroom of man and the courtroom of God. And Jesus notes that in the courtroom of God, what matters is the heart. Jesus is not concerned here with necessarily murder, but his main concern is that the kingdom of heaven is a place where God judges every desire, every declaration, and every deed. He knows our thoughts about our brother. Even if it never gets to the point where we call them, you fool, he knows the thoughts that we have in the manifestation of anger and hatred in us. We might be able to fool the world, but in God's courtroom, there is no fooling. Well, there's no laws necessarily, at least not yet, 
against saying things like, you fool. But Jesus says both your anger and the name-calling and the hatred will be liable to judgment the same way murder will be liable. You'll be liable to, for murder in God's form. And the reason is this. God knows that what's down in the well is the same thing that comes up in the bucket. And if you can say in your heart, you fool to your brother, you have not yet understood the gospel. James 1, 14 through 15 says this. If each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Insults and name-calling are not the specific evil in view here, but rather the heart that could conjure up such hatred. That's the focus that Jesus wants to emphasize. He wants to purify a heart that could say in its deep recesses, I hate other people. Almost all murders begin with anger. Every serial killer, even serial killers, pick their prey based upon the hatred for a particular type of people. You find out that a certain type of person has died. Maybe a certain, uh, you see in so many of these cases, prostitutes get murdered. And you find out that the boy has some kind of anger built up against his mother. Every murder begins with, who did he have a falling out? Was there anyone angry with this person? Everyone begins to swim. Jesus knows that if we don't eradicate anger at its source, we will never eradicate murder. I found something rather interesting this morning while I was finishing up my study. The word grudge in English is associated with the word grouch. Jesus says, the one who is angry is lying. The word there is orgizomenos. Looks like the word ogre. You know what an ogre is? A man-eater. Someone who is perpetually angry and upset and embittered. And when Jesus uses the word anger, he's not talking about fleeting anger. The anger that comes and goes, he's talking about that anger we hold on to and we love to hold on to. The anger we are unwilling but fully capable of getting rid of. He says anger, anger this morning. He is talking about this grudge holding. I find it interesting though that the word grudge is connected with grouch because that's exactly what grudges make us, a grouch. If you're holding a grudge against someone this morning, don't you see that it's only affecting you? Let's say this, it's at least primarily affecting you because it's true that your grudges sometimes affect others. They can affect your family. They can affect others. But primarily, it is your decision. It is your sinful and willing decision to hold a grudge in anger against someone. And Jesus says that is not the behavior of the believer. Some of you are saying, okay, I agree with you. 
and we've got to get rid of our anger and we can't hold grudges, but I'm not ready yet. But that excuse won't hold up with Jesus. Jesus doesn't command us to take our time and wait a while. In fact, he says, come to terms what? Quickly. And though the adverb is missing from the command to leave our gift at the altar, we may safely assume that urgency is always best when pursuing reconciliation with our brothers and resolution with our neighbors. But that some of us wait for reconciliation is in no way a Christian virtue. The one who holds on to their anger also holds the keys of reconciliation. In their hands lies the means to open up the door of reconciliation at any time so that the two parties may once again enjoy fellowship of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In fact, the word for reconciliation there doesn't mean one-way reconciliation. It means bringing both parties together. When you hold that grudge, you prevent your brother or your sister from being in reconciliation with you. It's a two-way reconciliation. If you choose to wait another day to reconcile with your brother or solve a dispute with your neighbor, look in the mirror and see what this grudge has turned you into. Look at your family. Look at your church. Look at your friends. How has this grudge affected every part of your life? Look in that mirror and see the grouch you began. Who am I angry at? Maybe you say, I've got fine, I'm fine with others, but what about God? At any rate, whether it be others or God, but especially if it's God, the point is come to terms quickly. Because once this life is over, you've lost your opportunity to reconcile. With your neighbor or with God? Jesus says, okay, so anger is as serious in my courtroom as murder. I will hold you accountable for your hatred in your heart. Should it not even enter into murder, should it never manifest that way, I still hold you accountable because God can judge everything. But now he gives us a solution. He tells us to reconcile, to restore, and to resolve. Listen to what he says in 23 and 25. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court. Now there's two people going on. Number one, your brother. You fab fault with your brother, be reconciled with him. The two of you become brothers again. If you're at fault with a neighbor, maybe a non-believer, be reconciled, restore that relationship, Re reconcile yourself from getting into further problems with your neighbor. And do so quickly. But this is the solution that Jesus has given but listen to how serious this is. In the first case, many of us have had falling outs with people over hurts they've caused us or sins that they've caused against us or maybe we've caused against them. 
In those days, people would bring their sacrifices to the temple to offer their gifts to the Lord. It was here that they found favor with God and they worshipped Him correspondingly. For us, today, we worship God in the local church. We bring sacrifices of praise and song in prayer through the reading of His Word and especially in the Lord's Supper. But what matters most to Jesus, more so than us coming in here and singing songs, more so than us praying or practicing the rite of the Lord's Supper, is that we be reconciled to one another. When I started here, they asked me, what's the greatest need we have for this church? The greatest need we have in this church and probably just about everyone is to reconcile our debts with one another. It does not matter what we sing, what programs we put in place. Should we come in here and sing and practice programs all the while hating our neighbors and our brothers? If we have not begun to live the Christ-like love of all people, we are not yet the church God wants us to be. We are to restore. And Jesus says this is so important that even before you come to church, even before you come and sing, I would rather you go to your brother and be reconciled. And I don't think we have to take this literally, but... But what if that happened? What if next week before we sang the very next song, someone said, I cannot worship God in good conscience while I am out out on the outs of my brother or my sister. And got up and walked over and said, I'm sorry. Forgive me. What would this church be like if every grudge was forgiven? Forget for just a second how problematic it might be to have a song when everybody's running around saying sorry. But how exciting would that be? How choice would our songs be sung? Maybe the reason why you don't sing as loud is because you still have anger in your heart for a brother. Listen. God is not impressed by your suit in your Bible, and how many Sundays you come if you still have hatred for your brothers and for your neighbors. That's what his purpose How do you apply this? You begin by seeking a person out and saying, I'm sorry. You say, that's hard to do. Obedience is always hard to do. But don't you know that it's better to obey? I think back of Saul. When Saul brought sacrifices to God instead of obeying God. And Samuel said to him very lovingly, What does God want with your sacrifices? What does he want with the fat of rams? God would rather that you obey than that you come to church every Sunday. 
have to begin right now in our lives and in this church with our fellow believers, with our non-believing neighbors to restore fellowship and reconcile above all worship. That's what Jesus wants. Begin the part in the process of reconciliation. Finally, Jesus warns this in the last verse. Reconcile while you still have Jesus says, finally, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. There is never an opportunity when you will have time in the next life to pay off your debts. This life is it. Jesus uses the very same phrase, you will never get out of prison until you have paid off your debt. In Matthew chapter 18, when he speaks of the unmerciful servant who did not forgive the lesser debt of his brother, and he uses the same phrase. So when the king found out that the unmerciful servant did not forgive the 100 denarii debt of his servant, he became angry and threw him into prison until he could pay off his debt. His debt was 10,000 talents, which is an incalculable number. The metaphor and the reality here are overlapping. In the parable of the unmerciful servant, Jesus uses the very same phrase, until all his debt should be paid. And in the parable, the unmerciful servant owes an unpayable debt, so too, then, those of us who fail to reconcile with our accuser in this life will not have opportunity to pay their debt off in the next one. How many of you this morning have failed to reconcile with God. The accuser, the walk to the courtroom, can be seen metaphorically as our walk to judgment. We have nothing but space and opportunity to reconcile with God this morning, yet we sit stubborn, saying, I will not receive the grace, I will not confess my sins. You see, the process of reconciliation is a very small thing. All it requires is confession and repentance. The gospel is such a mysterious thing. How anyone can look at God and His great, great gift of salvation in His Son as the only requirement and say, I will not say to you, God, I'm sorry, is a mystery. It requires that we take to ourselves an attitude that sacrifices our pride and says to God, I will obey. Reconciliation is small, but it is not simple. Short of the Holy Spirit, it is impossible. But this morning, 
To be reconciled with God requires that you swallow your pride and you say to both God and man, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. The good news is this. Should you take that same attitude to your brother or to your neighbor and ask for forgiveness, we don't know what they'll say. They may say to hell with you. I don't forgive you. That attitude is not the attitude of a believer, mind you. Why? Because we have been created in the image of the God who when we come to Him and say, I sin, please forgive me. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of unrighteousness. You see, if you have anger in your heart for your neighbor, if you are unforgiving in your grudge, it shows that you do not have God as a father. Because your father will give us Forgiving the unforgivable, loving the unloving, doing so before we even ask. What is the love of God? The most perfect love of God is that while we were yet sinners, that Jesus, while you were spat on, while you were beaten, while you were hung on a cross, innocently, you, God, showed your love to us. And pray, be merciful upon them, for they know not what they do. God, your love is so amazing. While we were yet sinners, having nothing of our hands to bring to you the reconciliation, you sent your son. church. There are so many foods that I don't even know about, Lord. There are foods I do know about, Lord. But I know that that anger has sat and it is festering and it is not pleasing to you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict and grab that heart so tightly that before we come to worship next week, we will be reconciled to our mother. Lord, let us see that this is the greatest evidence that you have made us in your image. That we act like you act. But Lord, we know, we know this. Apart from your spirit, apart from Jesus, we can do that. Holy Spirit, like you descended on the church on the day of Pentecost, descend into the hearts of those who hold grudges today. Convict them and bring about reconciliation in this church where it needs to be. I ask these things in your name.
us now go out and love and unlove you. Because of you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, that was weird. You were just... Hey, what's up? It's me, and I'm the realest man in